Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Voice of Adoptees, which brings together diverse and unique voices from around the world to share their stories. If you liked today's episode, remember to give us a like, subscribe, and leave a review. Here's your host, David Shunk. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Voice of Adoptees. We are here with Sarah from Kansas. Hello, Sarah. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Happy to be here. Great. Well, let's jump right in. How about you tell us a bit about yourself and, you know, let us know who you are. Okay. Well, my name's Sarah. I am a domestic foster care adoptee. I started doing adoptee and child welfare advocacy about two years ago publicly outside of that because that is not all that I am. I'm a parent. I have two beautiful children. I also have a dog named Tilly or Matilda Everest Spot, is her full name, and a cat named Dr. Maya Madge Marlene Miauchi, or we just call her Maya. I enjoy crochet. I love fiber arts in general, but crochet is probably my favorite. And I also love plants. So that's a little bit. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, I tried crochet once and let's just say it didn't work too well. <laughs> That's okay. And you know, I would be rem- I would be completely remiss if I didn't mention my wonderful husband. I'm also married. I've been married for 7 years now. So, yeah. Oh, that's great. So, why don't you tell us about your earliest memory in the foster care system? I was actually adopted when I was 3 to 4 years old and I was adopted by my second set of foster parents who I had Yeah, I had been with them since I was still an infant. They told me I was about 8 months old when I went into their custody. So, I don't actually really remember being in foster care specifically just due to being adopted by my second foster parents. Okay. What was your foster family like? Did they ever tell you, in their words, why they chose to adopt you? Well, so I'm trying to figure out the best way to articulate this. They were very honest from a very young age regarding why they chose to adopt. And that actually kind of turned into something that I have had a difficult time with in adulthood, just kind of wrapping my brain around. But they ended up choosing to adopt a short version due to infertility. And they decided to adopt through foster care specifically when they realized they could not afford any form of privatized adoption. Okay. That has been something that has been a little bit difficult for me to wrap my head around because it has kind of always felt like I was like a budget option, if that makes any sort of sense at all. Yeah, well, no, it's, it's however you feel. So if you see it that way, that's that's fine. You know, it's your it's your story. <laughs> so I have a question, a uh, follow-up about foster care. Do you think foster care and adoption from orphanages are different? I do think they're different, mostly just because of, well, not even mostly because of, but there is the, there's a whole cultural component that makes it completely different. In the United States, there's not really orphanages. Some people like to compare orphanages to group homes, but again, there's, there's not the same like cross-cultural remove from culture put into an entirely different culture component. And I don't think that's something that's small by any means. When you talk about culture, what culture are you referring to? Culture is terms of identity or nationality or what you, you know, who you are raised or? Yeah, both, all. Yeah. It, I think it's very individual. Like in this specific instance, I was referring a little bit more to international adoption specifically, right. like literally being removed 
from an entire culture to be brought to a different one. And that encompasses all of those things for a lot of people. And while there there still can be, and there often is, cultural differences within domestic adoption, it, it's still not that huge, big, large culture shock, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I get that. Makes sense. So you said you wanted to return to your Slavic roots, but you experienced difficulties about it not really be welcomed so much by your adoptive family. How did you go about reconnecting with your Slavic group? Well, and that's a really good question because I'm st- I still feel like I'm always going to be at the beginning of that journey. But to give a little bit more context on my story, my biological dad was Czech, well, half Czech, I guess. And I was put into foster care as a child, like a young child, which we've already established. But his Czech heritage was very, very important to him. It was something that he really, really wanted to pass on to me. And he didn't really get the opportunity to. My adoptive parents were not really great at supporting reunification efforts when I was a child with most of my biological family. And my biological dad was included in that. So as we've kind of, well, let me backtrack. I'm sorry. (laughs) He passed away a few years ago, about three and a half years ago. And before he passed away, I was in a bit of a little bit of contact with him and he he told me how important all this was to him and at the time due to a lot of things that my adopted parents had told me and due to him actually trying to kidnap me when i was a kid i was very scared of him and it wasn't until i met him in person a few months before he died that i realized i didn't really have anything to be scared of And at that point, the best outlet for me to learn and reconnect was dying and then died. I didn't really care a whole lot until after he passed away. So there have been a couple things that I've been trying to do. I've been trying to learn Czech, but I've only been able to do that like intermittently because I get frustrated because I'm trying to do it all by myself and learning Czech in the middle of Kansas can be a little bit frustrating when there's not a ton of resources for Slavic language learning. Yeah. But they, I live near Kansas City and they have an annual Slavic festival. I went for the first time this year, which was really fun. I went with another adoptee and it was it was a lot, a lot of fun. Next year, I'm planning on going to Prague. My family is from from near Prague, about an hour away from Prague, so I'm pretty excited about that. That's awesome. That's so cool. What are you going to see when you're uh, in the Czech Republic? Oh, there's so many things. I want to go to the village that they're from. There's another kind of like medium-sized town called Kutnohora, and they lived in a small village about 15 minutes away from there called Koratis. So I'd like to go check out Kutnohora and Koratis. I don't know if there's going to be anything to see in Koratis, but um, based on what I've seen on Google Maps, there's not a lot there. But Kutnohora seems very interesting. There's actually a church in Kutnohora that's decorated with like literally 40,000 skeletal remains, like 40,000 to 70,000 skeletal remains. So I kind of want to go check it out. I know that's a little bit morbid, but yeah, that's in, that's in Kutnohora. So that's kind of on the list of things to see. I think I just want to go check it out and see what I did there. Check it out. (laughs) (laughs) I see what you did there. What are some, is there, if you had one takeaway from your visit, what would it be? Like, what's one memory or 
something you can check off a list when you come back to the U.S. and tell people about your trip? What would that one thing be? I don't. Oh, that's a good question. I don't really know. I think I think for me, it would just be having the opportunity to go. I know that's something that my biological dad really wanted to do and was never able to. And part of me kind of feels like I'll be holding on to and fulfilling some sort of legacy bucket list dream that never happened. I'm sure. Yeah, he'd definitely be proud of you. That's what it sounds like. That's awesome. So you described at one point your journey as you were coming out of the fog. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So FOG is actually actually an acronym that stands for Fear, Obligation, and Guilt. And it is used a lot of the time to describe victims of different types of abuse, leaving abusive situations. And when when they come out of the fog. There's a lot of adoptees who like to kind of uh, co-opt this term. And I felt like it was really fitting in in my case as well. A lot of people have this understanding that every aspect of adoption is beautiful because, you know, it seems really altruistic. It seems like people are, you know, just helping kids. It seems like it would 100% be a good thing without And there's a lot of people who don't really recognize the complications that come with adoption as well. And so coming out of the fog happens for a lot of adoptees, not every adoptee, but for a lot of adoptees in their mid-20s and early 30s, which kind of correlates with frontal lobe development being completed. And a lot of the times, the way that I describe it to other people is it's just when an adoptee understands the full scope of the impact their adoption has had on their life. And that can look a little bit different for everybody, but it's like you're no longer fearful of, you know, saying the wrong thing to the wrong person when it comes to talking about your adoption or having feelings about your adoption. You no longer feel obligated to support others' emotions above your own, and you don't have to feel guilty about that anymore either. And and that's kind of how I describe to people and what that is, how it how it translates with adoption. And with adoption, there's a lot of things that can kind of push people out of the fog. There's a lot of life events that can correlate with that. And I was one of those people that had life events that pushed me out of my adoption fog. And if you want to, I can go into those. <laughs> Up to you, because my follow-up was to tell us if the journey had a positive outcome or a negative outcome. Ooh, that's a good, that's a good question. I'll kind of go over some of the things that put me out of the fog and then I'll go into that. So the very first thing that happened that started really pushing me out of the fog was the birth of my second child. When I had my first child, I, it took a, it took a long time, but I experienced that connection that moms talk about when they have kids. And it it was really, really interesting. But with my second child, it, it was immediate. That connection was immediate and it kind of threw me for a loop. And then it was really interesting because a few months prior to that, and I hadn't processed any of this yet, was when my biological dad died. And then the pandemic hit. And with my job at the time, we decided to start working like a skeleton shift. I was not going into the office very often. And then we started working from home I had a lot more time to think about how I was feeling about things. And those are really kind of the three major things that ended up pushing me out of the fog while simultaneously I was kind of unpacking a lot of 
religious stuff at the same time. I grew up in a very evangelical Christian area of the world, and there was a lot to unpack politically at that time as well, which simultaneously was unpacking a lot of religious stuff too. Yeah. So that's kind of that first part of the question. And has it had, has this journey had a positive or negative impact? That, that is such a multi-layered question. Um, <laughs> you know, at first I would say that it really, really had a negative impact. It, it took a while for it to get to the point for me where it was a positive impact. But I felt very alone when I first came out of the fog. There's a lot of my family that is also adopted, both in my biological and my adoptive family. And again, I grew up in a really evangelical area of the world with lots surrounded by a lot of adoptees. And there was a lot of adoptees who didn't feel the way that I felt. And it it really led to a lot of negative feelings and self-destructive practices. However, when I started kind of doing my advocacy, I started meeting people. That was that was the first time that it ever started feeling kind of positive was when I started finding my own community and and building my own chosen family for lack of a better term. Yeah. And from there, just honestly, within the last year, moving away from my adoptive family has been really, really helpful and very, very healing. And I'm able to finally start figuring out who I am without that really being influenced by what my adoptive family wanted me to be or turn into. And the decisions that I'm making for myself and for my family are no longer influenced by my adoption. And that in and of itself has been really positive because I'm able to be who I want to be instead of who other people want me to be. I don't know if any of that made sense. No, absolutely. It sounds like what you needed was a little bit of space. Figure yourself out. And that's absolutely. that's perfectly normal. Every adoptee feels that way. So, yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. So when you started being active with child welfare advocacy and all this, you know, you're going online, you're putting yourself out there, you're talking about adoption, you're bringing it up in conversations. Have you ever advocated for, well, I mean, when you say child welfare, let's talk about that specifically, what parts of it? I mean, I know it's a general kind of topic. So when I say child welfare, I mean child welfare as a whole. And I know that's super broad, but like to narrow it down a little bit, my advocacy tends to be specifically within foster care and adoption context. Something that I haven't mentioned so far is as I was coming out of the fog, I was also working for Child Protective Services, processing abuse and neglect reports, which adds another really interesting layer to this whole thing. Wow. Can I ask how many of them you had? Well, so my my position was really just to process the reports as they came in. So sometimes those would be online reports, sometimes those would be phone reports. There was a quota. We were supposed to meet a day of eight reports a day. So I didn't always meet the quota just due to what reports were available. But I mean, on average, like eight reports a day for three years of, you know, sometimes it was minor things. Sometimes it was very, very serious allegations. Wow. I could imagine as an adoptee working and doing that. I mean, because I feel like there'd be a lot of moments where you would think, what if this was me? You know, a lot of what if moments. Well, and at that point in time, I was really good about compartmentalizing my feelings when I took that position. I hadn't come out of the fog yet. I hadn't even begun to process what had happened to me. 
that point. And I took the job because I knew I was good at compartmentalizing and I wanted to help kids in the state of Kansas. And that was, it took, when I came out of the fog is when I started really unpacking how there was a lot of aspects of my job that, well, some of them, some of it was helping, some of it also wasn't. And I also started losing the ability to compartmentalize what I was hearing. And prior to the pandemic, this was just interesting in my observation, but prior to the pandemic, about half of our calls were currency reports. So that that wasn't too bad. But when the pandemic started, we started getting a lot more serious allegations and serious concerns. And that's also when it started to become a lot more difficult. You think that the Department of Child Services are capable of handling these situations that are coming in, or do you feel they are lacking in the ability to handle some of these cases? I don't think they are lacking in the ability to handle them. I think that a lot of them don't understand the nuance of losing family, and I think that there's a lot of money tied up in the foster care and public adoption systems that a lot of people don't really understand how it works. And that leads to more families than necessary being separated when there's resource-related concerns. So that's kind of my one of my biggest issues. You know, 63% of children in the United States, when they are put into foster care, one of the reasons listed is due to neglect. And when you're talking about child welfare, neglect literally equals lack of resources and yeah there could be other aspects but it's not it's you don't see people that have moderate to higher incomes losing their kids to neglect so that was something that was becoming very very frustrating for me while i was working there and knowing those facts and statistics about why kids were being taken and learning that that was part of the reason why i was taken as well okay wow so if others wanted to start getting involved with, you know, adoption and advocacy, what advice would you have for them? Like adoptees specifically or allies? Either one. Adoptees specifically, the first thing I would say is figure out what your motivation is. What is your motivation behind doing advocacy? I don't actually like doing advocacy, to be totally honest. I have a voice. I'm pretty good at speaking and talking about some of these things in a way that makes a lot of people understand what the issues are. I'm really good at breaking things down. My motivation is not about therapy or self-healing or anything along those lines. My motivation is literally trying to make the world a safer place for one more displaced child and then one more displaced child or finding community with adoptees who need that community. My my motivation has nothing to do really with me at this point. But find your motivation, and if your motivation shifts, that's fine. But if your motivation is, is therapy, essentially, behind doing adoptee advocacy, make sure that you recognize that, because that's going to that's gonna impact how you're able to communicate and talk with others. And that's going to, Im- that's going to impact your impact as well, because people are going to be able to see that. That said, I don't think using advocacy as therapy when it comes to adoption is necessarily a bad thing. I think it's just something that people need to be aware of and be cautious of. That makes sense. Yeah. For allies, specifically adoptees and former foster youth or people who experience foster care that are wanting to advocate and see changes within the system, we we need allies because the reality is at the end of the day, 
policymakers aren't really going to listen to us. Anybody who can make a difference isn't really going to listen to us because we're too close to it. We, we need allies. We need other people listening and helping fight with us. And that said, um, I think the best thing that allies can do is start out by listening. And if something makes you feel uncomfortable, sit in that discomfort for a little bit, figure out why it's making you uncomfortable, and then keep doing that until you have a much more solid grasp. And then ask adoptees how you can help specifically, what things you can specifically do to help this community. What do you think the communities, when you're referring to the community, I assume you're talking about the adoptee community? You know, I would even make it broader than that, not just adoptees, but people who experience displacement and children who experience displacement. Adoptees are just people who experience displacement that went through a legal process, like a different legal process. And there's obviously certain nuances that come with that that don't come with kids to age out of foster care and vice versa. But like when I say community, that's that's really what what I mean. So thank you for asking that question. That was that was a really good one. Absolutely. If you could explain to someone who's not familiar about what the foster care system is or how it works, uh, do you think you could explain it in a few sentences for someone that wouldn't understand it? Yeah, just super basically, foster care is a system that is ran by state governments that has very little federal oversight. And it is where if there is a child that is deemed as being abused or neglected by their parents and their parents are deemed unsafe by a judge, the foster care system is where a lot of kids will go and stay until their parents are safe or until there's some other kind of permanency plan for that child. There's a lot of weird finances caught up in it. Sorry, I'm doing more than a few sentences, but this is the part that (laughs) this is the part people don't understand. Yeah right here and this is the part that when people start understanding it they're like what so in 1997 there was this act that was passed on a federal level called the adoption and safe families act and the idea behind this act was to reduce the amount of time that kids spent in foster care which sounds like a great idea in theory but it did this in two ways it a reduced the amount of time that biological families had to work towards reintegration to approximately a year and b it started financially incentivizing states to adopt kids out of foster care and almost overnight like within a year adoptions from foster care doubled reintegration rates went down and adoption started being seen as like a positive marker of what states were doing and that can often lead to children being unnecessarily separated that's in my opinion why we have such a high number of kids being separated when it's just a simple resource related concern that was a very good answer thank you for uh, explaining that tell us about the classes you're currently taking what do you learn in them and what is your personal goal in taking these classes which sorry which classes you were you were explaining uh oh oh oh, i i had mentioned that i had taken foster parent classes that's what it was yeah actually before i came out of the fog my husband gabe and i were planning on becoming foster parents it's not something that we have totally decided against in fact just last year we had decided to go ahead and finish up our licensing because all we need to do at this point is license our house. But at the time we sat down and we had a serious conversation. We weren't really in the mental headspace to do it at that time, at that point in time. Mm. 
And for anybody that's considering becoming a foster parent, that's something that you really, really need to be honest with yourself about. Like, are you in the mental headspace that you're not going to cause more harm to traumatized children? So that's just something that I would throw out there if anyone listening is considering becoming a foster parent. Wow. And so you said you were taking a break or you weren't in the mental health state of mind, you know, to do it at that time. Would you say you're more in that state as you're getting older or do you think you're going to reconsider? I think I'm I think I'm more in that state as I'm getting older. That said, I don't I don't know when we're going to decide when it's the right time, if that makes sense, because that's one other thing that I see with a lot of foster parents. I know a lot of foster parents personally. It seems that sometimes there is there's one person who wants to do foster care more than the other person does and kind of drags the other person into it. And then that can lead to a lot of feelings of resentment towards the child in the home by the person who wasn't as interested. So like if if you are somebody who is in a domestic partnership with someone, that's something that you need to be really, really aware of if you're considering becoming a foster parent is how both of you feel. And both of you need to be incredibly honest with yourselves and your partner about how you feel about becoming foster parents. Yeah, that definitely takes a lot of soul searching. Definitely. What positive, what would you say the most positive memory you have in your entire experience with adoption in general? What was like the one thing that really stuck out? Like as a kid or as an adult? Looking back on it, as you're an adult now, how would you feel? Like, how do you feel about it? Do you feel your entire experience has been mostly positive or mostly negative? Holistically, I I feel like my adoption in general was relatively neutral. I know one of my biological parents wasn't safe. The other one would have been with resources. I, so from from that aspect, I feel really, really neutral about, about it, to be quite honest with you. Mm-hmm. But even broader, even bigger picture, I don't think had I not been adopted, I would have found the voice that I have found today. I don't think that I would be here um, doing advocacy, making a difference in the lives of children and families. And that's something that, you know, I don't even care about it for me. It's just, it's something that I know is impacting other kids in a positive way. So that's, again, that's really what my motivation is. And I'm meeting that goal. So from that, from that perspective, it's been positive because other kids are are getting positive outcomes from my story. Yeah. Through your story, many are benefiting. And it's great that you are willing to, you know, go public and talk about the difficult things that some people don't want to, you know, go to that part of their life and think about. But I believe with adoption, it's something that if we want society to understand it and have others understand how we feel about certain things just because we're adopted, then they need to learn from us. You know, we're responsible to educate them. It's not the people that spend X amount of years in college studying about it who aren't even adopted themselves, in my opinion. I just think there's a big disconnect there from the, you know, the mental health community that really wants to support adopted children, yet lack a lot of therapists who are adopt themselves mm-hmm. so i feel like that'd be a really strong bond if you know more adoptees could you know maybe consult for therapists who are trying to help other adoptees in situations 
I completely agree. And that's actually something like from a mental health perspective, that's something I'm really, really passionate about. You know, there's not a lot of mental health professionals that are certified in adoption competency. There's very, very few. And it's actually really interesting because classes to become certified in adoption competency are like $40. It's not expensive at all and free if you don't need continuing education credits. But it's one of my pet peeves when I see adoptive parents specifically that are mental health professionals that are doing mental health care and marketing specifically towards adoptees. There are so many adoptees that I've spoken with that have had that have crossed paths with a mental health professional that's an adoptive parent and that adoptive parent ended up doing more harm than good in those mental health settings, including myself. Wow. And do you think there's a solution for those unfortunate situations? Oh, that's a good question. On on a legislative level, I don't think that adoptive parents, well, on a legislative level, I don't think mental health professionals in general should advertise that they work or they specialize in adoption without being certified in adoption competency. Mm. Not And this... On a personal moral level, I don't think that adoptive parents should market that they specialize in adoption for any member of the triad, to be honest. It's too hard to not project when you have that that power, like mm-hmm. when you have that power dynamic. So I think those are two of the, the biggest easy ways to fix that. When it comes to the damage that is done, like all I can, like from mental health professionals that are adoptive parents, I think the biggest thing is adoptees need to be more aware that there there is a community that will support them and help them find mental health resources that are more appropriate. And yeah. How would you uh, let people know about these resources? Where can they go to uh, find them? That's a really great question. Actually, there is a website, the Center for Adoption Support and Education. They are the main people that I'm aware of that have a directory adoption competent therapists or therapists that have been certified in adoption competency. That said, and oh, and you can look therapists up by state too, which is really nice. That said though, there are still some people that are certified in adoption competency that throw up red flags for me. I've looked at a couple different names and there are still a handful that are on that list. So you still have to be diligent, still have to try to find somebody who will work well with you and um, be supportive for you. One thing I would tell adoptees as well is it's okay to break up with a mental health professional if they're doing more harm than good. Because adoptees, we like to not make people mad. It's okay to break up with your therapist if they're hurting you. That's some good advice. And I've dumped a few. (laughs) Me too. Yep. So my final question for you is, what advice do you have for other adoptees and those who who are also enrolled in the foster care system or have been through it and struggling getting past their previous experiences? Oh, that is a good question. I think probably the biggest thing, and I know, and this is just what my experience has been, and I know everybody reacts to trauma in different ways. My trauma response regarding my adoption experience has always been to be a people pleaser. And I know that there's a lot of adoptees who are people pleasers, and that's a very, very common response. For those individuals specifically, I would say it's okay for people to not like you. 
it's okay for you to be yourself. It might be lonely for a little bit, but you get to choose your community. You get to choose the people that you let in your life at this point, uh, this point going forward. You get to choose people who uplift you and you don't have to choose people who tear you down. And it's okay for people to not like you. So, yeah. and it's okay for you to be yourself. Beautiful. Thank you. Sarah, thanks so much for stopping by. We really appreciate the time and your work that you're doing and really just, you know, taking time out of your busy day to talk about adoption and your history and your experience. And I think you're doing great. And it sounds like you're going to continue, you know, I hope, educating people about adoption and solving so many difficult, really, topics surrounding adoption. And it's been great listening to your story. Well, thank you for having me, David. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And uh, we hope to hear from you again soon. Any uh, new big news coming your, coming your way, you just let us know and come back and share with us again. Sounds good. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thank you again. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. You as well. Thank you so much. Folks, that was Sarah, another adoptee who was great, shared her story here on Voice of an Adoptee's. If you're adopted yourself or you know someone who is, let them know about us. They can come online, voiceofadoptees.com. We're on all the uh, podcast stations, Google, Pandora, Spotify, you name it, we're on it. Thanks so much for tuning in, and uh, we will see you next episode. Have a great evening. Voice of Adoptees, who am I? Thanks for listening to Voice of Adoptees. Please take a moment to like, subscribe, and leave a review. See you next time.